I, uh, I pray throughout the week for the message and try and say things that I think God wants me to say. The whole truth, nothing but the truth, okay? But I realize I don't hold the corner of the market on truth, neither does Wes. Sometimes I say things that I, I wish I could have back, okay? And always, always, Wes and I invite you all, anyone, to read your Bible for yourselves. And if we say something, you say, hey, I don't know if I see it that way or that's not right. Please, please, please come talk to us. Now, I don't think I said anything heretical, but I have been coming down pretty hard on social media recently. And I want you all to know that I don't think you are sinful if you're on Facebook or Twitter, and neither does the Lord, okay? Facebook, Twitter, so all of the grams, everything, all of the stuff, it's not sinful. It's a tool. And it's a tool that can be used for good or for bad. And I've been coming down on Facebook and, and those type of platforms because there's been a lot of not good things on it, which you all recognize, but uh, you're not a sinful person if you had it. The church uses Facebook. There are good ways to use those things and interact with people. So I just wanted you to hear, all, hear that from me, that, that social media is a tool and you should use it wisely and well to sow seeds of hope and love and gospel truth into our world, not for some of the other reasons that it's being used. So I wanted to get that out of the way before we got started and say, I don't hate social media, and you're not a sinful person if you use it. And the Bible doesn't say that, and, and I'm not saying that. But So yeah, that's what I felt like the Lord wanted me to say, and I said it. Now, let's get into the, uh, let's get into the, the message, the series this week. Last week, we started with just two verses, and we kind of rolled out the series, called it Live Different. I know it's Live Differently. This is grammatically incorrect, but this is how we talk here. So get over it if you're, if you're a stickler on that. Live different. Live different. And we talked last week that the world says we have two options as a Christian. We can either flee from the world, hunker down and hide out, or we can fight the world. We know we can smack people around and use the world's mechanisms to change things. Power structures, all that stuff. We can flee or we can fight. And last week, we said, well, neither one of those is really an option for a Christian. We need to live different. We need to live like Jesus, for the world, in the world, not of the world. And some of you might have been a little frustrated last week because you're like, yeah, okay, you made your case, but you didn't really tell me how. And I get that, and I didn't. And that's because that was the first message in a series where we're going to explain the how. So if you were frustrated last week saying, where's the application? It's coming. Today is part of that, and the rest of the series will be that. What does it look like to live differently in a world that is not our home. And last week, we started it out, and we said we have to cling to some of the gospel truths. We have to remember who we are. We have to remember whose we are, and we have to know that we know that we know what our future is, where we're going, that we're being conformed into the image of Christ more every single day, reflecting his glory to the world, eventually raised in glory, completely cleansed by the Holy Spirit, Completely new creation. The old man is dead. The new man has come. Hallelujah. That's where we're going. Okay? So, for some of you, these truths were probably not new to you because you've been walking in Jesus for a while. But I realize that every Sunday, not everybody is in Jesus yet here, right? Some of you are still kind of sorting things out. Some of you got dragged here. Some of you are here because you think, maybe I, I want to know some stuff, but I don't really want to know. Christians are weird in a lot of ways that I don't think Jesus meant them for, to be weird, which is true. We are weird some ways that Jesus didn't mean for us to be weird. So you're kind of sorting things out. So I want to speak to you for a minute. Those who are not in Jesus yet and those who are maybe not sure where you're at, okay? What I want you to know is the world says, you might hear this a lot, the world, the world will tell you everyone's a child of God. Everyone belongs to God. That's actually not true. 
That's not what the Bible says. You say, wait a second, what are you talking about? When the world says that, what they mean is you've been created in the image of the maker. You are an image bearer. Because you're a human, at the point of conception, you have specific DNA that makes you uniquely you. And as a human being with human DNA, at that point, you are made in the image of God. You have dignity. You have worth. You have value because you are God's special creation. That is who you are. That is who everyone is universally. And it's because of this truth, the fact that all of us are image bearers of our maker, we want to create things. We want to build things. We want to be in relationship. All of that is what it means to be created in the image of a relational and a creative God. Because of that, we as Christians need to stand up for, for life. We need to stand against abortion and against assisted suicide and against any other crazy thing that our world comes up with to kill off life, okay? Anything, because life is valuable because we're made in the image of God. That is who you are. Universally, if you're a human being, you're an image bearer. You are also an exile. We were created to live in relationship with God in Eden. We are no longer in Eden, So all of us, regardless of whether we acknowledge God or not, are in exile. We are living in a world that is not as it was meant to be. And so all of us share in this exile and we suffer in this exile because we're not home. We're not with God in his presence. That is universally true. What is not universally true is who you belong to, whose you are. See, the world says everyone's a child of God. No, that's not what the Bible says. Everyone is not a child of God. You say, well, how do you become a child of God? It matters who you're loyal to. It matters where your faith and your loyalty lies. If you are not on God's team, then you're on Satan's team. If you don't belong to God, if you haven't surrendered your life to him and said, listen, I want you to be in control. I want you to have my family, my career, my kids, my health, my politics. I want you to be in control of all of it. I'm on your team. You're the boss. I'm going to follow you. If you haven't switched allegiances, then scripture says you don't belong to God. you're, You're not a child of the king. You haven't been born into his family. You have a less noble birth. You say, well, who's my father if God isn't? Satan. I realize that's offensive. I get that. That's very stark terminology. And so just to to help bolster what I'm saying, I want you to hear the words of Jesus. Jesus speaks to a group of Christians in John 8. In John 8, a group of Christians, not just any Christians, these are the pastors of the day, okay? People who should know better. Jesus is speaking to them, and he begins to realize they don't love me. They don't love Jesus. In fact, they're seeking and plotting to kill Jesus, And Jesus spoke to these pastors, and he said, You, you are of your father, the devil. You are not of God. Essentially, he said, you don't belong to God. You're not his child. Why? Because you're not loyal to me. You're not loyal to me. You don't love me. You refuse to listen to me. You can't even hear what I'm saying because you haven't been born of God's spirit. You're not in his family. You don't know the voice of your father. The voice you're listening to is the voice of your father who is the devil. 
You still belong to your father, the devil. You are working to bring about his desires. Say, what are those? Well, Jesus says, the devil's a murderer. He's been trying to steal, kill, and destroy. Murder from the very beginning. And that's why you, pastors, Pharisees, that's why you are trying to murder me. Because you don't belong to me. You belong to Satan. If you're not on God's team, if you're not loyal to Jesus, you're on team Satan. Now, say, why, why are we starting out like this this morning? Well, because I want you to know that if you're not of God, if you're still in Satan's family, I want you to hear that if you're still a child of the devil this morning, that God wants to adopt you into his family. He wants to adopt you this morning. If you're still held captive to that thief's family and his murderous, death-loving heritage, God says to you this morning, come join my family. If you've ever lived your life in a family where you think, my dad is the worst, my mom is the worst, I wish I could choose a new family, Jesus Christ is telling you this morning that spiritually you can. You don't have to live with the legacy of your father, the devil, any longer. You can have a new father, a new inheritance, a new legacy. You can be adopted into the family of God. And some of you might be saying, how do I do that? It's not that hard. Surrender. Give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, I think you were God. I believe what you said. I want you to be in control. I can't do it. You can. Please help me. I want to be on your team. I know I'm not going to be perfectly loyal, but I sure want to try. Would you help me? Jesus says, come into my family. Come, belong to me. Be one of my children. Come and be a co-heir with Jesus. I've got an inheritance for you. I've got a future hope for you. Friends, Everyone here this morning, you all were created in the image of God. That is who you are. But who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? Do you have the things of God in mind or the things of the devil? Whose are you this morning? If you'd like to belong to God, to become one of his children, then give your loyalty to Jesus Christ in faith. Be born again. Be born of the Spirit Get a new genetic code, right? You got a history of, of heart disease and cancer in your family. God says, I want to I give you new DNA. I want to give you new genetics. Believe in my son. Be loyal to him. And I'm going to make that happen. Put him in control of your life, your possessions, your work, your words. Be born again. Be born again to a living hope. To a living hope. We could use some hope. Couldn't we in this life? Man, there's a lot of not good stuff going on. I don't know about you, but I could use some hope. And that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. More than talk, I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach about the hope that we have in Jesus. God wants us to live differently, to live different in this world. He desires for you and I to live with a certain and a secure hope. And that's today's big idea. Live different. Live with a certain and living hope. Live with a certain and living hope. So in regards to that, let me ask you, how's your hope? How's your hope? Where and in what, in who are you hoping? Is your hope secure? Is it safe? Is it certain? 
See, a little bit later in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3.15, we're going to look at this, but I'm going to jump ahead because it's so good. Peter says that as Christians, he expects that we as Christians who belong to God will be prepared to give a reason for our outrage and our anger and our offense. No. He says, you, Christian, always be prepared to give a reason for your hope. Your hope. So again, I'll ask you, How's your hope? How's your joy? The rich, Jeff Bezos, he's worth like a trillion dollars. That's like, money doesn't even matter anymore. A trillion, what? We get why the hope, hope, or why the rich have hope. Money can buy a lot of stuff, right? We get why powerful people, why politicians have hope. Those of you who are sports fans understand why the New England Patriots generally have reason to hope. Why Browns fans don't, typically. Right? <laughs> oh, 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 he's so offensive. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Nobody's asking why the rich have hope. Nobody's asking why politicians have hope. Their hope doesn't need explained. Have you seen the videos recently of the people losing their mind over the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg? They're like weeping and hailing, gnashing their teeth. It's like, what is happening? Well, I think I know. Their hope is tied to things of this present age, right? All their dreams, all their future hope, their children's future is tied to what happens in the Supreme Court, in the markets, in the election, in governments, in the economies. All their hopes and dreams are tied to who wins, who wins the latest election. This kind of hope doesn't need to be explained to us. We get this. But what the world doesn't get is when all of these earthly reasons to hope fail, how is it that Christians aren't losing their minds? How is it that Christians still have hope? See, a Christian's hope is unexplainable. It needs explained. It defies wisdom and logic. It doesn't make sense. How is it that a Christian can live with hope despite the latest election? How is it that a Christian can still have hope when violent mobs burn down cities? When unfriendly bosses fire their Christian co-workers? How is it that a Christian wife can live with hope to an unmarried spouse or to an unbelieving spouse? How is it that a Christian can live with hope amidst all of the storms of life, all of the waves and winds of culture? See, this kind of hope doesn't make sense to the world. It's the kind of hope that makes people take notice. They scratch their head and say, what is wrong with you? It's the kind of hope that makes people open their ears, open their, eye, their hearts, and listen to what we have to say. Is this the kind of hope that you live with? Is your hope inexplainable to the world? Does it require an explanation? Do you know the certain hope that you have as one who has been born again? You say, I don't know. Well, good. I'm glad you're here this morning. Peter tells us what it is. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. He tells us what our hope is, what we've been born again into, that living hope. And he also tells us a couple things that threaten that hope. So firstly, let's read what our hope is. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power 
are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtain, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the glory that was yours to be, or that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were working not that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So firstly, what is this hope that I've been carrying on about? What is the hope that you, if you have given your loyalty to Jesus, have been born again? What is the hope that you now have? We talk a lot here, appropriately so, about how Jesus died for your sins. If you're a Christian, you understand that fact. You know that God loves you, that he sent Jesus to die in your place. You also know that you have forgiveness of your sins through faith in Jesus. You probably know as well that you're called now to live differently, right? To live um, in light of the grace that God has given you in a way that brings glory to God. Most people inside and outside of the church know this to be true. They know that Christians are supposed to behave like Jesus behaved. And a lot of them don't want anything to do with Christianity because they look at folks in the church who claim to be Christian and who don't live according to how Jesus calls them to live. And they say, I don't want anything to do with those hypocrites. Now, all of this is true and all of this is right. The, t- the scriptures teach these things. Jesus loves you. He died for you to save you from your sins. He's, he died to help you live in a new way, in a righteous way, in a holy way that glorifies God. All of these are true and right, accurate aspects of the gospel. But if we stop there, where's the hope? Don't misunderstand me. Forgiveness is huge. It's a big deal. It's more than a big deal. It's, it's a huge deal. Living righteously is also a big deal. It's huge. Being holy, being set apart, glorifying God. But these two effects of Jesus' death and resurrection, it's not the end of the story. You have to ask, why? Why does he want to forgive us? Why does he want to give us the power to live differently, to live holy, to live righteously? Why? What's his end game? What's the point? The point is, Jesus wants to forgive you. He wants you to live righteously so that he can glorify you. So that he can praise and honor you with Jesus Christ. So that he can exalt you as a family member, a co-heir with Jesus. Church, if you've been adopted into the family of God, 
You are not a stepchild. You are not Cinderella, right? You are not Cinderella, treated as a doormat, a second-class citizen. No, because of Jesus, Jesus, you've been forgiven. You've been enabled to live differently, righteous, so that you can live as a true-blooded God follower, a new creation, new DNA, new genetic code, true-blooded, full-blooded, an heir, a sibling with Jesus Christ. Now, if this weren't in Scripture, I would feel blasphemous declaring it because it's, it's, it's absurd. It is mind-boggling. When Jesus returns in glory, the Bible says if you belong to him, you will be exalted with him. You will be raised up and exalted to the place that he has been given. You will share in his glorification and his exaltation. The Bible says you will rule and reign with Jesus even over the angels. That's crazy. That's what Peter's talking about in verse 7. Verse 7 says, so that your faith may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whose? Whose praise? Whose glory? Whose honor? Yours. Your praise. Your glory. Your honor. You see, the hope as a believer, a born again in Christ, will be that we will receive the praise and honor and glorification that Jesus receives. His honor. His splendor is ours. His authority, he's giving to us. We will share with him as siblings in God's family. See, church, we don't have the power now, but we will then as heirs of the kingdom. We don't receive honor now. We're shamed. We're mocked. We're ridiculed, but not then. With Jesus, we will be vindicated and elevated Honored as co-heirs, given power to assist God in ruling and reigning in his kingdom. Jesus' inheritance as the Son of God, think about that. His rightful inheritance, he says, I'm going to share with all of the other children of God. That inheritance is secure. It's unchanging. It's untouchable, undefiled, imperishable. It won't rust or decay. It can't be stolen. God is guarding it. Church, our hope in Jesus goes far beyond just forgiveness of sin. It is crazy town to wrap your minds around what God is doing. So crazy, bonkers, out of this world. The prophets, when they're speaking, enabled by the Holy Spirit, they're scratching their heads, carefully examining, praying, God, what are you doing? Carefully looking at the word and what the, the spirit is enabling to say, this is what I'm gonna do. This is how I'm gonna raise up my people. This is what I'm gonna invite them into. The prophets are like, what? Did we hear, are we saying this right? The angels, they hear what God's gonna do and their mouths drop. They look on with slack-jawed amazement. What are you doing with these people? These weak and, and frail humans? You're gonna do what with them? They're amazed by it. Amazed by it. You see, church, we're worried about whether or not God is going to let us through the front gates of the kingdom. I hear this all the time. 
People talking about, when I die, you know, I know St. Peter, he's going to come, and they're going to say, well, didn't you do this? And, and we're, we're like, ah, I know Jesus is going to get me in, but we're, we're worried about whether or not we're going to get in through the gates. And God and Jesus are saying, child, quit. The gates? Are you kidding me? You're going to march right through those gates, on up the steps, and take your spot on the throne with me. Now, I wrote that. I wrote that, and I thought, dude, is that right? That feels wrong. Sit on the throne with Jesus? I don't deserve to be on that throne. I didn't do what he did. I can't do what he did. He's gonna, is that right? I was praying about that, and this verse came to my mind. These are the words of Jesus Christ, the king and the exalted one. This is what he said to those who've been born again. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What? What? That's crazy. Jesus wants you and me to sit with him on his throne. How can that possibly be right? I have no idea, but Jesus says that's what he's going to do for his children. Ruling and reigning with Jesus. This is what has been promised to the born again, to the believer. Exaltation, honor, praise, glory. Church, is this where your hope is placed? Is this what you rejoice in? Or have you set your eyes on far lesser glories? Is your hope rooted in the secure and sure glorious promises of God? Or is your hope resting more on the things of this present age? Now at this point, you might be wondering to yourself, man, I don't know. I love everything that you just said. I want that. Sign me up. Like, I, I want to hope in that. I want to believe that. I want to know that with my heart. I want secure, living, sure, hope. I want that. But man, I don't know. I, I waver. I'm back and forth. I'm not really sure what I'm hoping in. How do I determine where my hope is? How do I figure out what I'm hoping in? Well, I'm glad you asked. Peter says, he tells us, he tells us how we can determine what we're hoping in. He says that we can determine where our hope lies by watching how we personally respond to suffering and the present absence of Jesus Christ on this earth. See, after explaining what our certain and living hope is, Peter goes on to explain that there are two things that both threaten and prove our faith and deepen our hope. Say, so what's the first thing that threatens and proves our living hope? Peter says that our hope can be threatened or proved through suffering. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you rejoice. Everything I've just been talking about. All that craziness. Exalted with Christ. On the throne with Christ. That's what we're hoping in. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One commentator I read in response to these verses, he said this, he said, when we suffer, if our collective Christian tone is complaint, if we constantly lament our loss of cultural influence or social standing, if we weep and mourn as if Jerusalem has fallen when our chosen political agenda is overlooked, then we expose our true values. Those troubling circumstances 
have a way of unmasking our highest hopes. Sadly, far too often, they reveal our hopes have actually been in this present age and not in the one to come. See, when we suffer, the Bible says we have two options. We can turn from Christ. We can get mad and shake our fists at God. We can blame Him. We can run from Him. We can surrender to the prince of this world and His ideas. We can leave Christ and run after some other thing to find comfort and security and hope. We can surrender and give up and give in to the powerful ways of the world. Or we can double down on Jesus. We can remember where we're going. We can remember what Christ has purchased and promised for us. We can remember who we represent and where we're going. And we can find strength in this. Strength to stand up for the kingdom principles. To stand up for truth and justiceness and righteousness. No matter what it costs us in this life. Church, there are truths worth dying for. We can take heart that God knows our suffering. He knows what's happening. And compared to the suffering, the glory that's coming far outweighs all of it. It won't even come close to touch the glories that he's prepared for us. We can remember too that in Christ, nothing is random. Nothing is meaningless. We can take heart knowing that the the reasons that God has for us to allow us to suffer, they're far too good, far beyond our comprehension. Our good and loving Father has deemed whatever present trial we're going through, He's deemed it necessary. If it's necessary, who's decided that? God. God. See, when we can suffer, we can roll over and surrender, or we can stand upon Christ and claim the truth that God works together all things for good for those who've been called, chosen according to His purposes. We can determine to cling only to Jesus and trust him to be good and faithful even though we suffer. Just like Jesus entrusted himself to the Father amidst his personal suffering. Church, it has been my experience personally. It has been in the experience of thousands of believers before us, for ages before us, throughout the years. When they have been hit by trials of this life, to the point that Jesus is all that they have. They have discovered that Jesus is all that they need. I told you you can use social media. That's a tweet. When Jesus is all you have, you'll discover that Jesus is all you need. He will sustain you and enable you to endure things you never even imagined. Not just as those who get by, but as those who thrive with unfathomable joy. See, I don't know if that's true. Go pick up a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs and tell me what in the world is going on when people are burning Christians at the stake and their flesh is being consumed by flames and they sing hymns. They sing hymns. God sustains them. It's because when Jesus is all you have, it's because Jesus is all you need. He's all you need. Now hear me. I'm not saying that we should pray for suffering. Don't pray for it. Pray against it. I'm not saying that we should seek out suffering or that it's going to be pleasant. It's not going to be pleasant. Hebrews tells us as much. It won't be pleasant. No discipline will be pleasant when you're going through it. But 
if you're a child of the king, it will be productive. For those who double down on Jesus during suffering and continue to hope in spite of it, they will experience a purification of their faith and a deepening of their certain hope. Suffering is a threat to our hope, but if we remain confident in Jesus' promise, empowered by the Holy Spirit, if we stand up for the values of our heavenly kingdom, our hope will deepen and our faith will be purified and proved genuine. The other threat to our hope is Christ's absence. I love how real the Bible is. It's so real. Jesus said it was better for him to leave this earth than John. I've always struggled with that statement. I know it's better. I know he can't be everywhere because he's limited to the body and it's better that we get his Holy Spirit. To be honest with you, I fight with Jesus about that verse. Is that really better, Lord? I would love to have you in person. I want to speak to you like I speak to my friends. Is that better? This is hard. You're not here. I know your spirit's here, but it's hard listening to that guy sometimes. It's hard to know what I'm, if I'm hearing from him or if it's just gas, right? What's going on? I don't know. It's hard. It's subjective. It's hard. Peter is acknowledging this struggle here. He says, though you have not seen him, verse 8, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Church, we don't see Jesus right now. We don't see him right now. Yet if you've been born again to a living hope, you believe. You stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before you. You believe what they've said about him and the Holy Spirit confirms it in our hearts. You love him. You rejoice with an inexpressible joy in what Christ has done for you and the future he has prepared for you. But we're not in that future yet. And Jesus isn't here today. His spirit is. He's not. Where is he? The Bible says he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And his absence on earth is felt. The earth is a wicked place. A lot of times it seems like the wicked prosper and God's children get punished. And that threatens our hope. We are presented, again, with another choice. Will we turn away from Christ his spirit within us, his promises to the pleasures of the world, to the power of politics, or again, will we double down on Jesus? The Bible says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, not in the future, right now. This means despite what you and I can see, he's working. He is working. Even when we can't see it, he's working. He's bringing all of history, all of the elections, all of the kings, all of the laws, every moment of history, everything to a culmination, to a point where he will return with his children on the clouds to redeem and recreate this world into something glorious. He, not, he might not be here yet, but he's given us his spirit as the down payment, the guarantee about the future he's bringing. And we can remain confident that despite how lost at sea we might feel, that Jesus remains the captain of the ship and the commander of the storm. Remember in the boat? Be silent. And the storm quit. That's our Lord. He's in control. Church, I'm fully aware of the days in which we're living. I know the tensions are high. I know that many Christians are fearful, and I understand, I understand the angst, the anxiety, the worries. I share them. As our society gets further from God, I wonder how much longer we'll enjoy the freedoms to have to gather together like this to proclaim the gospel. I'm worried about that. 
I wonder whether or not we'll see a day, a day when Christians or pastors are jailed for something they call hate speech. I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about a culture of death pervading our society instead of a culture of life where our country decides to offer abortion and assisted suicide and whatever crazy mechanism to kill people that they dream up on demand. I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about religious freedom. I'm concerned about the treatment of refugees, the fate of Christians across the world that are being massacred and murdered because they believe in Jesus. But listen, my hope, your hope, is not rooted in politics. It is not rooted to governments or laws of the land. Our hope is secure in heaven. Our hope remains unchanged by the outcomes of this or any election. Our inheritance is untouchable. It is untouchable. Our future is guaranteed. Our souls are guarded by the power of God. And church, God said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yes, you should clap for that. That is a beautiful truth. Despite what we see, God will build his church. And so we as Christians can have courage and stand on the values of God's kingdom and stand up for truth even when and especially when it costs us something. Our hope is secure and God is sovereign. And because of this, I know I'm going over. I don't care. <laughs> I want to close by speaking about how we as Christians can and should be taking our stand for God's truth and God's kingdom values. Many Christians are fighting and fleeing and fear. Loved one, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What do you have to fear? Your hope is secure. When we take our stand, I'm wondering if we wouldn't be wise to change our tone. As a people of God living in light of this certain and secure hope, we don't need to constantly be sounding the alarm bells. We can calmly and confidently make our case. You remember Paul and Silas? Paul and Silas, these were bold men. Paul, Paul was a bold guy. They're taking selfies. They're in jail. They're taking selfies, right? They were bold. They were courageous. They preached the gospel without fear. They stood up for truth and injustice when a lot of people wouldn't. They were jailed for their faith. You can read about it in Acts 16. Do you remember how they responded? Do you remember how they responded? They, did they question God's will for their life? Man, we're in jail. Maybe we misheard this. Maybe we shouldn't have gone to Macedonia. Maybe, maybe we misheard God's will for life. Certainly, this can't be it. We must be hearing it wrong. Jesus wouldn't want us to go to jail, would he? No, he wants us to be healthy, wealthy, prosperous, comfortable. Isn't that what Jesus wants for us? Surely, this isn't what he meant for our lives. Maybe we should have been less bold in our declaration. Maybe we should have been less confrontational, confrontational in our preaching. Maybe we should have waited for a better opportunity to share our faith. So we, we earned the right to be heard. If only Nero wouldn't have been elected as president. This is ridiculous. I'm calling my proconsul. This was a senator back in that day. I'm calling him. I remember a day where you could go out whenever you wanted and talk about Jesus. There was no threat of jail time. Look at where we're at now. This is outrageous. Is that how Paul and Silas responded when they were jailed? No. 
Why not? Because their hope was rooted in something other than what this present age has to offer. When Paul and Silas were arrested for proclaiming the truth of Jesus, when they got to jail, they didn't sound the alarm bells. They sang hymns. They rejoiced. They praised their heavenly Father because these men knew the living hope of born-again believers. You see, church, I think we would be wise as Christians in the West to change our tone. Proclaim and stand for truth. Yes, amen. Do it. Stand for kingdom righteousness, kingdom values, Thank the Lord that our hope does not depend on an election or the Supreme Court or any other worldly thing. But don't panic. You don't need to panic. Your hope is secure. Your God is sovereign. I'll finish with this. Do you remember, some of you are old enough to remember, not all of you, some of you are old enough to remember when the car alarm was first introduced, right? You remember in the parking lot, the first time you heard that thing go off and everybody's like, who's thieving, Right? Where's the thief? Let's get him, right? That's laughable to most of you now because when you hear the car alarm, you're like, who's, shut that stupid thing off. Whose is that, right? For when we're going on right now, is that me? Shut it off. That's annoying. My fear is that as Christians, we have begun to sound like a car alarm. We don't listen to the car alarms anymore because they've become a nuisance, We've learned that more often than not, no one's stealing the car, right? We just want the noise to stop. I believe that is how it is with our witness. If all people ever hear from us Christians is alarm bells, then they won't listen when we actually have something important to say, when we actually have something to warn them about. They won't listen if they've come to expect brash tones and useless panic. As our freedoms slip away and suffering draws near, we must not be known as an exasperated people always ready to give an answer for our protest and our grievance. Our collective tone cannot be like that annoying car alarm. We must not be a people always longing for the past, for the glory days, but for those looking to a certain and truly glorious future then we will have an opportunity to reason with others about the hope that we possess. Christian, you're called to live different. Live with a certain, secure, and living hope. Let's pray. Father God, there's a lot that makes us anxious in this world. The election... A lot of the stuff that's being talked about and in our culture that just does not line up with your love for life, with the dignity that you've created human beings with. There's a lot that makes us anxious and fearful, Lord. Thank you that you have made a way, that you have given us the opportunity to take all that makes us afraid, all that makes us anxious, and you've said, cast your cares upon me. I'll take care of you. I will take care of my world. Father, I pray that you would mark us as believers, that you would make us so gripped 
by the future that you have prepared for us. So rooted in that hope, that hope would strengthen us to live today with courage for the message of Jesus Christ and the principles of your kingdom. Not in a place of panic or fear, but out of a place of love for the lost, a place of security where we can calmly and confidently declare truth in boldness and with zeal. Lord Jesus, we long for your coming. We pray that you would come soon. In the meantime, give us the grace we need to endure the trials of this life in a way that brings you glory and that strengthens and proves our faith and hope. And may the Holy Spirit become more real to us, more personal to us, as we long and look forward to the day where we'll talk with you like a friend talks with another friend, face to face. Keep us, Lord. Guard us by your power, for your glory, for the good of this world, and the one that is to come. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.